Welcome to the Q Podcast Show, where we discuss ideas, innovations, and thought leadership in frontier areas such as AI, machine learning, and finance. In today's session, we are joined by Alexander Denev and Saeed Ahmed on a talk on frontiers and alternative data on techniques and use cases. In this talk, Alexander talked about alternative data and discussed its uses from his book, The Book of Alternative Data, such as what is alternative data and the adoption of alternative data. In Saeed's talk, he discussed the use cases in alternative data. Now on to Sri Krishnamurthy, the host of the show. Welcome, everyone. This is the 10th week of the Quant University Summer School, and I'm Sri Krishnamurthy, and I'm very happy to invite you all to the last lecture of the Quant University Summer School series. You know, I live in Boston, and uh, I just got to know that today is the first day of fall in here. So we have just completed an eventful summer. Uh, we had a lot of great talks, a lot of good discussions in the last 10 to 12 weeks. And we are capping today's, uh, we are capping the summer school with uh, Saeed Amin and Alexander Daniel, the authors of the book, the book on alternative data. And I'm very uh, enthusiastic to hear about their amazing research they've been doing over the last many years and how they see alternative data change the world. Before we hand over the stage to them, I wanna make a quick couple of remarks about the Quant University Summer School and also for Quant University for people who are not familiar with us. We are based out of Boston and we started out in 2013 primarily as machine learning and data science advisory focused on financial services. We've been working with various clients, primarily in a B2B capacity. And in the last few years, we have started creating many educational programs, primarily to bridge the knowledge gap between the amazing research which is happening in the data science machine learning realm and what practitioners need to know. So in that aspect, we have uh, put together the first summer school in 2020. And we basically did three courses, one uh, primary introduction to data science and machine learning using Python. And the second course was an intensive eight week bootcamp on of machine learning. And the third course was on model risk management for machine learning models. And uh, we have had people from more than 13 different countries come to the summer school and we also have had 10 plus different lectures from amazing speakers and practitioners. And we are fortunate to have the support of the whole community to make this happen. And we are gonna be extending these efforts with the fall school, which is starting in October. We're gonna take a week's break next week and then we'll come back for the fall school. And we are gonna repeat some of the courses we have been doing in summer and also introduce a new course the FinTech Bootcamp, we call it the eight facets of FinTech. And Premier, the, uh, the risk management organization has been supporting all these programs and we are partnered with them to offer these programs. And I welcome you to check out qfallschool.splashthat.com for some of the details on these courses. Without further ado, I wanna tell about today's agenda. So we have two amazing talks an introductory talk by Alexander Daniel, and then some of the uh, use cases which Saeed will talk about. And then 
uh, Alexander will talk a little bit about causality in machine learning and AI. And then we will end the session with a fireside chat, a virtual fireside chat with some question and answers. So if you have any questions during the presentation, please feel free to use the question and answer panel button or the chat window to put your questions and we will answer as many as we can as time permits. So today uh, we'll be hearing two lectures and both these lectures are primarily sourced from the book of alternative data, which uh, Saeed and Alex have researched and put together. It's a Wiley publication. And uh, for people who don't know Alex, Alex uh, leads the AI and data science team at Deloitte. And uh, he has also taken an initiative on responsible AI and various other AI and machine learning initiatives. And uh, he has uh, uh, presented at multiple conferences and various forums. And welcome, Alex, to the Quant University Summer School. Saeed and I uh, were primarily in the MathWorks MATLAB circle probably 10 years ago. And uh, I've known Saeed from his work uh, when he was kind of uh, primarily based out of London and working with uh, another colleague of mine in London. And uh, he is the co-founder of uh, Thalesians, which is a large community organization for various quantitative techniques. And they've been putting some amazing programs. And he's also the founder of QMacro. And he's also one of the well-known researchers in quantitative finance and has presented at multiple forums and also has an amazing GitHub repository where he has open sourced a lot of the packages he has been developing. So welcome Saeed and welcome Alex. And um, I would like to give a shout out to the book of Alternative Data. It's an amazing book. I've had a chance to take a look at uh, an early edition and I'm very, very enthusiastic about the book and today's session. So without further ado, I will hand over the stage to Alex. Thank you. Thank you, Shri, for, for your introduction. Uh, please allow me to share my screen. Give me one second. Let me just share yeah. panelists. So Alex, you should be able to share the screen now. Yes, let me try. Yeah, you're able to see? Yes. Right. So again, thank you very much, uh, Shri, for having us here. Uh, we are honored to, to have this lecture with the Quant University. Uh, I think everybody is, is aware of what's alternative data. It's been one of the hot topics and words for, for, for the last at least uh, five years together with AI, blockchain, quantum computing, and, and so on. But how much reality there is behind alternative data? Is there any use in practical applications that can justify this term in the, the adoption of what's labeled alternative data? This is the question that we try to answer with Sid when we started writing this book. And uh, was a very long journey. We start uh, around two years ago, and how this book was born was born, born out of uh, pure co coincidence. Uh, I met with Marcus Lopez de Prado when he was finished his book Financial Machine Learning, and he said he asked me, "Why don't you write another an, a book on alternative data? I don't have the bandwidth. I just finished my 
my book on financial machine learning, but there is nothing out there on alternative data as a systematic treatment. And then I approached Said, and this is how we started talking. It, this was approximately uh, two years ago. And many things have happened since then. This is really a, a rapidly evolving field. And we are seeing new platforms uh, being uh, uh, created, new marketplaces, new approaches, approaches and so on. So it's a really a rapidly evolving field. Uh, we try to, to, to push until the last minute to have the most updated version. But uh, what you'll see here in the book, when you, if you buy it and decide to read it, is, a, is what happened in the world uh, approximately nine uh, months ago. Uh, what uh, but what happened since then? It's something that's very interesting from the point of view of digitalization. We're seeing that uh, due to COVID-19, uh, most of the businesses are becoming digital. Uh, the use of alternative data has, has been increasing and in not only in the financial services sector, but also with the governments. If you want to track COVID, of course, one of the best ways is to use data that's not standard, maybe mobile traffic, satellite images, and different, different sources that were labeled are still labeled alternative. So what happened in the last six months actually uh, lifted up the use of alternative data and brought it steadily outside the financial uh, sector. If we stay within the financial sector, of course, there are many uses. We center the book on uh, investment management in, in trading. But of course, we can think of applications in the insurance sector, also in, in, in uh, credit markets, credit supply. So this is really a new field, it, it's emerging, is exponentially growing, and there is a lot of innovation uh, going on in, in, in this field. How we define alternative data? It is data less commonly used by market participants, tends to be more expensive, often outside financial markets, and has in general shorter history, and more challenging to use. Okay, so if any data set ticks one of one or more of these boxes, we, we define it as alternative data, but bear in mind what is alternative as uh, today can become mainstream and much more commoditized. In the future, once we have all the, uh, the necessary platforms and data fits in place, and when the, once the usage has been uh, widely uh, adopted. So what's alternative? It, it's a point in time uh, uh, definition. There is a lot of data around the world, and we also define exhaust data as data by, which is a byproduct of other processes. So most of the businesses, they don't exist because they, they are creating, generating, distributing data, but they have main activities. And as a side effect of these this main activities, they generate exhaust data. Uh, this is their digital print, the footprints, and this is the results of their business. If you think of a bank, that can be the number of transactions, the transactions that are being done through the bank. If you think of a newspaper, this is the, the, the news article being, being, uh, being, uh, being written and distributed. So the main, the main uh, purpose of many businesses is not to collect and distribute data, but data is a side effect. So how to monetize data? Not to throw it in the rubbish bin, but does this exhaust data have any added value to society? This is what we tried also to answer and, and examine in the book. Many examples of alternative data sets in the, the usage, again, focusing on, on the investment management world, uh, we see different applications, different combinations of, of, of data sets, uh, can be online data, for example, uh, to track prices and hence uh, predict inflation. So if you invest in inflation swap, 
or you have some uh, inflation-linked securities. This is this is uh, a way to where you can source uh, source data. Application uh, credit card, for example, it's another source of, uh, of alternative data by monitoring credit card transactions. Of course, anonymized. Uh, one can have an idea of the status of the economy almost real time. Of course, a lot of examples: uh, social media data, uh, sentiment uh, to benchmark the sentiment about stocks. So. Indeed, combinations here of data can be uh, can be uh, uh, can be really uh, huge huge set of combinations. So why do we use alternative data? Uh, mainly for two purposes. One is uh, for as a proxy for variable that we do not observe. So take GDP. GDP is released uh, quarterly in general. But how can we get a picture of the current flow of income in the economy, so current snapshot of GDP, before wait, instead of waiting three more months for, for this figure to be uh, uh, published, we can use, for example, PMI indicators. In this sense, these indicators serve as a proxy for GDP. So alternative data can create a lot of proxies before the official variables are published. It can serve also as a complement so for example, if you want to, to predict the return on a certain stock uh, uh, on equity, you can use alternative data as a proxy to find what is going to be the next balance sheet. And we show examples uh, in the book from the automotive universe, okay? How to use high frequency data instead of waiting the next financial statement, uh, a statement uh, a publication. And we can use alternative data, not just as a proxy, as I just mentioned, but something that's complementary information that we want to uh, <clears throat> we want to use in this specific example we can use production sales data to to understand uh, the, the productions and has the sales of companies but we can use also sentiment which is something complementary so we're not using sentiment to proxy fundamental economic information about the firm but something additional You've heard of many Vs of, of big data, uh, around 10 Vs. Uh, we settled for seven in the book to characterize uh, alternative data. So I, I put here in the slide big data, but alternate, alternative data need not to be a big data. Some alternative data sets, they're really small, uh, but there is substantial overlap between alternative data and, and big data. What is characterized by? Volume, of course, it's it's increasing. Okay, we see more and more uh, data sets being generated. Variety. So we don't have just numerical data now. We have text, image, video, sound, and so on. So variety, the diversity of the data sources and their their nature is increasing. Velocity is increasing, of course, with with the speed of the internet increasing. Also, the the velocity with which these data sets uh, are moving increases. Variability, of course, it's, it's increasing as well. This reflects the inconsistency in the data. Okay? Uh, and of course, the way you collect the data, sometimes you have physical limitations, and this can, can create inconsistency in the data, uh, missing data, outliers, and, and so on. So if you think one, the most obvious example is satellite images, they can be a very good quality, uh, but of course, there are clouds and you can't really predict uh, those. And if you want to have data points, you know, regular data points observing, let's say car counts in shopping malls, you sometimes have long streaks of, of missing data. So this is something that 
you know, comes in spades in, in an alternative data world. For example, if you use GPS, geolocation data, if you're between buildings, very close to buildings, that, that data is, is, is less uh, uh, accurate. Uh, and of course, veracity. Uh, this uh, again uh, relates to the accuracy, but that there is something on, on the top of that. We all heard about social media. So, is are really news that we read there real, or that they fake news? Okay. Or as another example, this can be too obvious, but if we are buying data from a third-party provider, how sure we are that this is real data, accurate data? It's not synthetic data. Not fake data. So there is this uh, part aspect as well, which 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 is part also of the risk management of alternative data. I'll mention later. And of course, the value. Uh, we're trying to prove in the book that the value is increasing. There is more business values uh, in, in business value in the data. Uh, Said so later we speak about signals that we found in in variety of the data sets, and indeed, there there are signals in alternative data. If you use common sense to select data sets, uh, you will almost always find signal. Does it mean that this signal is useful? Not at all, uh, because there are a variety of hurdles that make the adoption of this signal in production costly. This can be a, a cost of risks, illegal, technological, cyber risk. Uh, this can be also the price of the signal. What is the price at which this signal is, is being sold? And of course, also you have technology costs if you use clouds, cloud services for, for, for which you pay. So in the end, when you factor in all these costs, you might really notice that the value of the signal is, is, is really low. So one must be really wise and experienced too when it comes to uh, creating, building signals and adopting them in, in production. Who are the buyers of, of alternative data? Uh, limiting ourselves to the to, to the financial services world, of course, we see a variety of factors like sophisticated quants, hedge funds, of course, a traditional quants, traditional investors, asset managers, maybe pension funds, and, and, and fintechs. Uh, these are consumers of alternative data, and of course, they have different needs and purposes why they use alternative data. Okay, uh, who what we're seeing now there. They're innovators and early adopters. When we spoke, when we wrote the book, we spoke to, uh, to many market participants. We see some of them really pushing aggressively uh, towards using alternative data. We spoke also to some who qualify uh, as big or medium uh, asset managers. The experimenting already have adopted a couple of alternative data signals in, in production. And of course, we see uh, uh, laggards, people who Heard alternative data, and we even spoke to, to, to asset managers who haven't ever heard about alternative data. So the spectrum is, 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 is quite wide, as you see here. And what we think that firms that are reluctant to embrace these, these new approaches uh, coming from alternative data will face a strategic extinction risk because we really see value in alternative data <clears throat> and we try to prove this in a book. In the book. Uh, so when we were writing the book, we extracted some statistics about the growing use and the total spend on alternative data. Uh, you can see it here. And it's already outdated. As I mentioned at the beginning of the talk, 
due to COVID-19, the consumption of alternative data uh, has increased. So at the moment of publication, you know, we live in a such fast evolving world, this, this figure might appear is too conservative. How do we embark on, on, on the alternative data journey? Of course, depends which one of these players you are. Uh, what is your size? Uh, what is your maturity? What is your risk appetite for innovation? So, so there are many, many dimensions uh, to be uh, uh, considered here. But if you want, of course, to, to do it yourself, to venture on this alternative data journey, you have to kind of talent, okay? So you have to have data scientists and data scientists are, are costly. So uh, we give here a, an example, if you want to set up a data team, you need head of data, data scientists, of course, one data engineer, one data scout, and three data analysts. New York prices, this is around running cost of one, two million per year. Of course, if you're a big, big asset manager, uh, this is a small cost. If you're a family shop or a smaller fund, of course, you cannot afford to, 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 to hire this team. And then, of course, there are other, other options. Many data vendors, they already provide Signal as a service. So you can opt to, to buy by the signal directly from the data vendor. Uh, I mentioned data scout here, and, and data scout is a new profession that uh, we see in the market. Uh, this is a person who is specialized in um, understanding the data landscape out there, uh, who are the data vendors, what data sets are available, which one are of good quality, which one can be relevant for the asset classes, uh, for that particular asset manager, which one, which one are rare, uh, which one are overcrowded already, uh, uh, as many market participants could have already bought them and used them uh, in, in production. So data scout is, we think it's, it's an important profession. And of course, as there are many more data, and each and every day there are so many data sets appearing, uh, so this person really needs to be up to date what's, what's, what's happening in, in the data landscape and also in the platforms that are being uh, used uh, uh, being used in uh, the, this space. Uh, this, so this is a survey uh, that we performed to 110 uh, uh, market players. Uh, it's already outdated, it was late 2018. Uh, we're seeing a shift, as, as I mentioned, so we don't present this survey in the book, but it's interesting to show what the market saw two, two years ago on a same book, which is uh, quite significant. Uh, look at the top right part of the screen. So what's your organization's status for utilizing alternative data? Uh, we see that around 20% are doing some experiments or are using alternative. So one-fifth, here in this sample, we have different respondents like large firms, very large firms, medium-sized shops. And of course, two years ago, 20% were, were using alternative data. 50% uh, were considering, so they had heard what alternative data is, thinking about whether to use it, creating, thinking about a vision. So these figures now look more optimistic. So we, we, we see, as I mentioned before, more and more funds are shifting towards 21% uh, uh, you find at the bottom. And there are lots of POCs, uh, proof of concepts 
being run by, by investment firms. So this is uh, rapidly evolving. How is data delivered? Uh, we're seeing different options in, in the market. This on the data vendor side. Uh, if you want to sell data, of course, you need to deliver it. There are several options. And these options could take different market needs. As I mentioned before, uh, less sophisticated market players could opt for something that's already distilled as a signal instead of buying raw data sets. And data vendors are trying to accommodate uh, the, the different uh, data consumers. Of course, as a first pillar, we see data service, data as a service. Uh, state of art for its, its uh, data lakes uh, via single point of access. Uh, we show some examples uh, in the box at the bottom. Uh, infrastructure platform as a service. This involves co-located cloud infrastructure, maybe tech racks already available at the premises of the client where data can be directly sourced. We see other configurations like analytics as a service where uh, data science workbenches are already co-located where the data is, where data scientists can directly plug in, explore the data, do, uh, do, do some backtesting. Managing analytics as a service, uh, this is relatively less mature, uh, but this is when the signal extraction is outsourced to a company which has data scientists. And this is for, for smaller shops and uh, many data vendors are considering uh, jumping into that space. And of course, we have something more standardized. This is a signal as a service. As I mentioned before, uh, you can think of, of a pile of hierarchy of how, how, how these things work. So we have raw service, uh, sorry, raw data is the first part of this pile. Then we have clean data. So where in, uh, the outliers are, are, are removed, missing data is filled, but many sophisticated players as hedge funds, they want just the raw data because removing outliers with the data vendor could mean removing some precious signals they want to explore. So the third part of this pile is the signal as a service. So already trading patterns and factors extracted and delivered by, by the data vendor to, to, to the market players. And the fourth part of this pile is a smart indices. How, so how to combine the different factors coming from alternative data into a smart data, data strategy. We consider eight steps in, in how alternative data is, is, is adopted. It's adopted by, uh, by, the, uh, uh, by asset managers, eight steps. So the first one is, of course, to set up the strategy and the vision, okay? Shall we venture into alternative data world? So this is a question. And this is a question uh, for the CIO, for the CEO, uh, so the decision makers who, who, who run the business. Shall we start using this, 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 this type of data? Of course, with the help of the CDO and different portfolio managers, but this is high level management decision. Of course, second one is data requirements, identify the relevant data sets. This is where the, 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 the profession of data scout is, is very precious and you save a lot of time if you have good data scout. Then acquisition, due diligence, uh, third party risk assessment of the data later, uh, get some samples, understand, play with the data, you know, doing some small POCs. Risk assessment, evaluate all the risks and there are many risks, of course but they can be managed uh, uh, 
quite successfully. We have financial operations, operational regulatory reputation, and, and so on. I'll spend some time on this later. Of course, implement, implement controls uh, to manage these risks, incorporate the signals into a model. And of course, we have the decision-making and the monitoring. This is the value chain of alternative data in, in the asset manager. And of course, this value chain must be risk managed. So what are the risks I mentioned already? Data provenance risks, okay? Is data legally obtained? Are they scraping a website and are, are these data vendors allowed to do that? Okay. Uh, does it contain uh, information that's not being anonymized? So breaking GDPR, for example, if we deal with credit card transaction data. Or sometimes data might not be explicit, but you can always, you know, it's in certain data sets, you can reverse engineer uh, uh, the, the, the name of the people by combining, of course, with, with, with other data. So, so one must be really careful and perform due diligence in this, this point. Material non-public information risk. Does this data set contain any uh, private non-public information, which can be classified as inside the trading information? And of course, uh, mentioned before, third-party risk. Is this vendor reliable? Is it a big renowned organization or this is a small start, startup? Uh, of course, there is third-party risk that the data was not generated uh, accurately, can be even synthetic fake data. It, of course, uh, third-party disappearing. We've seen some startups sending alternative data disappearing. Do they have the financial enough funding for them to continue this business or they're at risks, uh, risk of disappearance. Of course, uh, talent risk, mentioned before, uh, uh, it's important, it's a fight for talent in, in the data science world. Data scientists are expensive, the turnover is very, high, is, is, is very high. There is, of course, risk connected to this. To this. Uh, always model risk, uh, alternative data tends to be more unstru uh, unstructured, Okay, text data, audio, satellite images. There is, of course, the stage of feature extraction, which is the, the factors, finding the profit factors. <clears throat> and of course, uh, everything is more complicated. So use AI models, for example, to count the number of, of cars, you can use convolutional neural networks, then you extract five fact these factors, then combine uh, with, with sentiment factors, put them together in another model that can be non-linear. So model risk increases in alternative data. And of course, with any AMAP model, you can have problems connected with interpretability and transparency, a very bad when you have to explain this to, 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 to let's say, to the board level of your organization. Uh, I want to spend a few words before I, I, I pass to, to, to the floor to, to say it. Uh, how do you purchase data? What, what is the price, if you're a buyer of data, what's the price that you should be paying for the data sets? And if you're the data vendor, what's the best strategy to monetize your data? Uh, this is an answer by, by, uh, by, uh, by the industry as of today. Uh, we are seeing many attempts to create data markets. Uh, not all of them, I would say most of them are not, not efficient at all. Uh, which means that 
what is missing, the fundamental thing that makes markets work is, is pricing. And pricing, it's not always done in an optimal way. Sometimes it's done ad hoc way, according to the size of the clients, data sets are priced in a different way, uh, in, in tiers. Sometimes uh, data is oversold, so we see overcrowding. So when a data set is used by virtually all the market participants, alpha could disappear. So what is the right pricing when you sell to more people? Okay, so this is a question uh, uh, to answer. We examine several options uh, in the book. Uh, of course, uh, data is non-depletable asset, so you can create infinite amounts of copies and sell them. So, so classical considerations like supply and demand do not really apply. Apply. We consider several several options of how to price data. Of course, tier tier pricing is, is, is one option. Uh, but we venture and, and we even consider uh, data auctions as a way uh, to extract the maximum volume from data vendor uh, point of view, point of view, and we even give some pointers of how to organize uh, uh, these auctions. So alternative data is, is just to conclude, it's a, it's a new field, it, it's rapidly evolving. Uh, there, there are signals, there are definitely signals. Uh, Almost wherever you look, of course, if you look wisely and you have good enough talent really to, to understand uh, uh, those data sets, uh, but discovering the signal is not a sufficient condition for, for them to be useful. What you have to take into account is also the processes, how you extract this data, okay? You have to take into account the pricing. Are you offering the fair price from your point of view for that data uh, data set? Also the technology. Do you have the technology to cope up with a large volume and high frequency of alternative data? So there are a variety of things that needs to be considered when venturing to alternative uh, uh, data world. But if they're done properly, uh, we believe there, there, there is, is, is good amount of alpha out there and we're witnessing already. Uh, many players going that way uh, are quite uh, successfully. Uh, with this, uh, I would like to coincide to replace me for the second part of this session and see if we'll show you some uh, signals that we found, found in data. I was going to say, I, pro I probably can't replace you, Alexander. You're irreplaceable. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I'll, I'll do my best. I'll do my best. Cool. So um, give me one second. Let me just. Uh, sure. Um, yeah, I think I have to do a magic trick in here so that I can reclaim privileges and then I can give you the privileges. Sorry. Sounds good. Um, so I'm, I'm going to do my my part of the presentation and then at the end we'll flip back to Alex for his bit on yeah. causality. Yeah. Thank you, Alex, for the amazing introduction. That was uh, really, you know, the 60,000 foot view, but I really wanted to see each piece in depth. So, you know, was, I remember my first flight, you know, when uh, I was kind of going through the landscape of uh, so, uh, Central Asia and Europe and every place like why why can't the flight just stay there and like spend another half an hour so I can get the whole 360 degree perspective. So maybe maybe we should we should kind of uh, 
know, set up like a full day session so that you can go deep into the each week and each segment and talk more about it. Um, so, Said, um, uh, you are now the presenter. Um, okay. Whenever you're ready. Let me um, try and see which screen I can. Um, okay. Can you see my uh, screen the on a PowerPoint? Uh, it's starting to. Yes, I can see your desktop and I can see your PowerPoint and the Zoom window behind it. Okay, great, great. Um, all right, so um, uh, I'm going to try and continue on from, from Alex's uh, uh, part of the presentation. So um, as was mentioned, I'm going to talk about kind of specific signals that we've found uh, and very specific use cases as well. So this is just a summary of some of the use cases from within the book, but hopefully it will give you a good flavor of some of the types of things that you can do with alternative data. I would stress that this is not an exhaustive list. So it's only a, a couple of things that we've specifically looked at in, in the book. So the first uh, case study that I'd like to discuss is looking at Federal Reserve communications. Um, so this is an index that, uh, that my firm QMacro has, has generated. Um, it's obviously not a secret the Federal Reserve communicates regularly with markets. So it could be through the course of doing speeches, statements, minutes, also in recent years, uh, press conferences following the FOMC uh, decision as well. Uh, and markets react to this. Um, they don't purely react just to policy changes, although that's obviously probably the, the largest reaction function, but also in terms of what the Fed says in terms of understanding uh, concepts like forward guidance and, and so on and so forth. Um, what I've done is essentially uh, done a lot of work essentially to, to, to read all these communications, uh, which are publicly available uh, from, from the, the web. Uh, and I've spent time basically creating a, a data set of these uh, Fed communications. It's not exhaustive, so there might be certain data sets which are uh, beyond a, a paywall. Obviously, we, we don't have license uh, to, to look at that, but for publicly available uh, data, uh, speeches, et cetera, we do, we do have a look at that. Um, and it's actually a good point that a lot of um, the work that you might end up doing with alternative data involves this cleaning step. <laughs> so getting access to the data, cleaning, et cetera. So, and, and it's exactly the same with, with this instance. I probably spend more time doing the, uh, the, the scraping of the data and the cleaning, getting it into a reasonable shape compared to other parts of the process. So once the data set is, is, is relatively key, and I've got around, I think, 25 years of, of Fed communications in the data set, then I applied some natural language processing uh, to the various texts, essentially trying to understand what their sentiment is. So looking at positive versus negative sentiment and coming up with a, with a score based upon that. Um, the rationale being that when the uh, FOMC are more upbeat and they're more positive in their tone, Typically, that means that uh, interest rates are likely to rise, or at least yields are likely to rise because it's a kind of more hawkish outcome. Um, but this compares to the outcome where they're a bit more downbeat and negative, and that kind of is associated with more dovish uh, rhetoric, essentially, from the Fed. And that's, that you'd expect there to be a, a decline in yields. Um, so essentially, I've, I've, from all these sentiment scores of all these individual texts within the, the data set, I've then constructed an index which gives you an overall view on Fed sentiments, essentially how positive or negative are the, are the Fed in terms of their messaging process. Um, obviously, if you're like an economist and it's your full-time job to, to, to read and follow what the Fed is doing, 
you'll probably read all of these uh, as it is, but I would conjecture that most people within the market probably don't read every single thing that Fed, or at least not a large body of what the, the Fed is doing. So the idea here is that we can use the mechanics of natural language processing, et cetera, to decipher this alternative data set, which typically I'd say most people don't take enough time to, to read in practice. Um, so here we look at the, the relationship between uh, these. So this is actually a, a, a slightly older version of the, of the data set. So um, I've got a slightly newer version here if I, if I go to, to, uh, to my website, basically. So we can have a look here. So this is a slightly, slightly different construction here. So it's the peaks and the troughs are not exactly in the same place. But what I've done is I've plotted that against uh, uh, changes in the US 10-year treasury yield over the past few weeks. And we can see for the most part, they do tend to follow each other. Admittedly, it's not a perfect fit, but actually if you regress them, you will find the T-statistic is, is significant. Um, and there are notable places where there's divergences. So in particular, for example, when Trump got elected, there's this massive divergence here in between what the Fed is saying in red in terms of the sentiment versus what was happening to yields here in blue. Um, and the rationale is basically that the, the driver for uh, US uh, Treasury yields was not really what the Fed was saying necessarily, but it was more in terms of the whole reflation theme with, with Donald Trump getting elected. Um, and here, just to give you a bit of flavor of the data set here, we can see some of the recent um, communications here, some of the scores associated with them. Um, so I don't have, for example, um, things behind firewalls or video interviews, but other, other things like the conference, press conference, etc. cetera, I, I do have that within that. So that's one example of a, kind of an alternative data. I wouldn't necessarily call it a big data set. So even 25 years of Fed communications probably amounts to, I don't know, 10, 15 megabytes uh, in terms of files. But we use some of the techniques associated with, with structuring data sets like natural language processing, which come up a lot in alternative data. Uh, the next discussion that I'd like to look at in terms of case studies is looking at uh, flow data for, for FX and basically creating trading strategies to, to uh, uh, decipher the signal. So essentially, if we think of FX as a more fragmented asset class compared to other, other markets like equities, quite a lot of FX is actually over the counter. It's not actually exchange traded. Um, there is some trade on exchanges like CME, but it's not, it's not I would say it's a relatively small percentage, essentially. Um, you have many different trading venues, uh, and also a lot of it might be bilateral trading, for example. I'm a hedge fund and I trade with Citi or Deutsche, et cetera. And, and a large part of the, the trading is, is done that way. So essentially it can be difficult to find comprehensive uh, volume and also flow data in FX because it tends to be associated with many different venues and, and, and places. Um, so CLS is actually a company which um, settle most of the over-the-counter deliverable FX trades in the market. So if you're talking about something like Euro dollar, they, their coverage is essentially over 50% of the market. Um, this compares to say with individual liquidity providers uh, that I don't think any of them will actually be able to claim 50% of the market in, in practice. And essentially they collect and distribute this data and they have hourly FX volume data and also flow data, which they've categorized for various price takers, such as funds. So what I've done is I've taken the data set associated with funds and looked at the FX flow uh, uh, based upon that uh, from, from, the C from the guys at the CLS. Um, and the rationale is this tends to be relatively directional when we look at specifically uh, the fund subsector. Um, and the, the actual, uh, 
flows actually tend to be quite correlated with spot as well if we look historically in a way that for example corporate flows are not necessary corporate flows tend to be more contrarian and what i've done is i've created a, a pretty simple z score based upon this fx flow data for for funds uh, and essentially when uh, funds are, are heavily buying a certain uh, currency pair we end up being along that currency pair and conversely when they're very short we end up being uh, uh, short as well. So we basically follow what funds are doing. And you can see here, I've just got a, a, this Z score that I've constructed. I've got the, the upper Z score at one as a trigger and then the, the lower Z score at minus one. So relatively simple trading, uh, trading rule that I've uh, got there associated with this, this data set. Uh, and what I've done is I've created some trading baskets associated with this uh, flow data set using that specific trading rule. And I've looked at the main, uh, the main deliverable pairs in developed markets, such as euro, dollar, dollar, yen, and so on. Uh, and I've compared that also with a simple trend following strategy, essentially to act as a, as a benchmark. Uh, and what we find is that um, if we compare, compare a strategy which looks at daily flow data versus trend, um, if we combine them together into one strategy here, the gray strategy, the information ratio is actually higher than trend in isolation or daily flow in isolation. So it's suggesting that if we're already trading markets in, in, in FX using trend, it's likely that um, we'd actually improve our risk-adjusted return by including uh, daily flow data. So there's something in daily flow data which is not necessarily present by looking at a pure trend-following strategy. So it could potentially help diversify our strategy. And if we also include, in addition to the daily flow data, we look at an hourly trading rule using hourly flow data, we have an even higher risk-adjusted return as well of, of 0.92. So what it suggests is there's value by looking at this uh, flow data high frequency, essentially. Um, and this, I would say, this type of data you would consider as alternative data because it doesn't tend to be very prevalent within, within FX. Um, maybe in a couple of years, we'll no longer call this alternative data within FX, but I would say at this point in time, this type of data would be considered a bit, bit unusual, I would say, uh, compared to, to other data sets. Uh, so this is the in sample, and here we have the, uh, an out of sample uh, period as well. Um, and we can see here actually trend underperforms the most uh, whilst the others are kind of close to close to flat. Um, so trend can kind of be our, our benchmark here. So another case study that I'd like to look at, this is something totally different, no, no, no FX or, or macro essentially, is looking at satellite data to estimate earnings per share. Um, so it's well known that satellite data can be used to help forecast the earnings, earning per share for retail stocks. And in particular, you always hear the classic example uh, if, if you've looked at this type of thing uh, in terms of uh, Walmart. Um, it's been used extensively in US markets um, for, for US retailers such as Walmart. And I think there's a firm Orbital Insight which, which actually looks at a lot of uh, US satellite data. And there's many others out there as, as well. Um, but I would say it's not really used as much for European firms as yet. So it's not that the technology doesn't exist. We obviously satellites go over Europe as well as US, but it often tends to be the case that data sets tend to come about in, in the US and then the ideas spread elsewhere, essentially. Um, so here it's just replicating that idea, but for European retailers. So since you um, geospatial insights, they, they get access to a lot of satellite data, specifically over uh, the car parks of various European retailers. And the idea being is that we use the, the car counts as a proxy for, for retail activity. 
Um, and the interesting point I would say with this type of, uh, not just necessarily this specific data, but one thing that you could do with satellite data is that potentially you might be able to map companies where you don't have much data at all. So particularly private companies that are not really forced to, to release much in, in the way of activity data. So this type of thing can help you proxy those companies which are privately owned. And this is of particular relevance for, for firms uh, such as PE, uh, PE uh, investors. Um, so this covers a number of European retailers, people like Tesco, Carrefour, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, and as mentioned, it covers both publicly traded and also uh, uh, private um, uh, companies as well. So here I've done something, essentially created a car count score. So what this does is very simply, I look at the total number of cars that have been counted um, in the data set. And typically they will end up basically taking uh, images of various car parks uh, throughout the month. Um, and uh, obviously a lot of work goes into identifying in the satellite images, those areas of interest. So they need to map out, like do uh, polygons essentially to identify where those car parks are. Um, so I've essentially looked at a six month uh, window counted all the cars, and then you have to normalize it by the surface area of the car parks that have been photographed. Um, one issue is obviously, if we don't look at the surface area of the car parks, we don't know how full they are. So just looking at the car count in isolation is not going to be as valuable as looking at the car count divided by the surface area of the car park to identify how full it is. So that's the crucial point. If you don't look at the surface area, I don't think you'll probably get as, as good results. So that's my tip for looking at satellite data when you're looking at, at car counts, make sure you look at the surface area as well. And then I've made sure that those six months are coincident with the six months earnings period. Um, in this case for, uh, for the European retailer Marks and Spencers in this example. So our period for the car counts will cover the same period as the official earnings released by, these, by this company. And I've plotted this car count score in gray here. Uh, and against that, I've plotted the earnings per share in, in uh, blue which has been uh, released um, uh, basically on the earnings day. Um, and against that, I've also given the Bloomberg consensus as well uh, of sell-side analysts. And um, obviously the, the nice thing with the car count is that's available as soon as the earnings per share period is finished. Whilst if we look at the official data, that's only available once we have the actual uh, earnings release date. And that could be several weeks afterwards. So essentially the car count could give you a much fresher estimate on what's going on versus having to wait for the official release. Um, and here I've just uh, presented obviously Marks and Spencers, but we can see actually just this simple plot of car counts uh, divided by the surface area um, actually ends up being, it tracks it fairly, uh, fairly well. And um, obviously in this instance, the car count measure didn't really um, cover it that well, uh, but say here, the car count measure actually was pretty coincident with the actual earnings per share and did a lot better than uh, the consensus estimates in, in this instance. Yeah. Um, so if we go on a bit further, let's go on to the next page. So this is just one company. So admittedly, uh, we, we can find that, uh, sorry, I just got a bit of that background, background uh, noise. So, um, so what we can find here in this specific instance is that just a relatively simple technique can end up being, like I would say, fairly fairly nice proxy for what the earnings per share uh, for a company would be. 
And one thing I would stress is in practice, you wouldn't use one specific variable uh, for the earnings per share, like car counts. You use this as an additional factor to look at uh, um, uh, in, in terms of augmenting into your, into your model. Um, and that's the crucial point I would say with alternative data in general. It's not about replacing your models, it's about augmenting them with uh, new variables essentially. Um, now we look at something slightly different. So in those cases, we're looking at generating alpha, coming up with better estimates, coming up with trading rules, et cetera. But the flip side of that is if you're executing, you want to be able to save alpha, essentially, reduce your trading costs. So one way to do that is through transaction cost analysis. Um, so here, essentially, what my point is that big data, and I say alternative data, isn't just for generating alpha. It's also about saving money as, as well at the same time to reduce your, your transaction costs. So you want to understand how much is each liquidity provider charging? Is one algo better than the other? And in order to do that, you need a lot of data. So some of that data is your own trade data, but it can also include, um, it obviously needs some sort of benchmark as well for you to look at. Um, and this is essentially something related to uh, essentially um, uh, tick data. And tick data, I think potentially you, you might be able to think of it alternative data. There are different differing views obviously on that. Um, but I would say tick data is probably not as commonly used as, as daily data, I would say. And what I'd like to do is just give you a very simple example of how to do transaction cost analysis. So this is for my uh, TCA Pi library, and this is all open source. Uh, so you can play around this with GitHub and do whatever you want. So if you, if you, like, if you like doing Python. So let me, uh, let me just go onto Chrome. So the first thing that I would like to show is just the GitHub page if you want to download it. So it's on github.com qmacro forward slash tcapi. Um, and then if you want to um, have an interactive view on it using Binder, you can click on this. This will launch Binder. Um, I've already done this earlier. So it takes a couple of minutes to load up because I'm using a free public server on Binder. Then we can click here a 10 minute view of tcapi. Um, and then it will basically load up. Okay, it didn't work because I didn't start Binder soon enough. But essentially, it comes up with a Jupyter notebook typically, and you can work through it, the, the example. So I'm not going to do that now because it will take, it'll probably take five, 10 minutes for it to kick off the server. But if you want to do it, you just click here, launch binder, and go through and, and click on the Jupyter notebook, and then you can interactively run the cells. What I can do is to go through the GUI. Um, so this is no code, unfortunately, but um, you can set this up uh, if you run it. Uh, so this is running basically on Linux in the background. What we can do is we can essentially select our trading period. So here we've selected it from 2017 November till the date in, in December. We're looking at all the trades that we've executed for, for Euro dollar. Um, so this will basically now run in the background for us. So it took four seconds there. It'll plot all of our trades. So essentially we see our, our orders against the actual tick data. We can zoom in here. We can see all our, our buy orders. We can click on them. Uh, we can look at the price before. We can look at the price after. Uh, we can also look at the slippage as well. So the slippage is the difference between the, where we executed versus our mid-market benchmark. And our mid-market benchmark, remember, is, a, is some source of tick data. Um, uh, we can also look at execution level as well. So you can zoom in here as well. So the difference between orders and executions is that orders have a start time and an end time. Uh, but there can be multiple executions uh, under, under an order. And uh, we can zoom in again and we can click on it uh, and we can look at the execution. And this is all open source and you can play with it. So if you're interested in the technology, 
I've used uh, Dash actually to do the, the GUI. Uh, and I've got like lots of uh, funky things in the background to distribute the computation, such as Celery. So even if you're not into execution and that type of thing, just to, just to have a look at the codes to understand how I've put together this might end up being of, of interest anyway. Um, and just whilst we're here, I've also got another library as well, uh, Fin Marketplace. So that's that's pretty popular on GitHub, and this is for backtesting trading strategies. So you could potentially, if you have alternative data set, use this as a way of generating a signal to backtest a trading strategy. And there are examples of, of a trend following uh, strategy there. Um, let me just, I'm just gonna open up very quickly just to see if there's any questions on the, um, on the, on the chat. Okay. Okay. So that's, uh, that's an example of transaction cost analysis. So the flip side of trying to save alpha with, with kind of unusual data. In this case, I would call that um, uh, tick data um, as, you, as my unusual data set in this instance. Um, okay, let me go back here. Uh, so this is just walking through what I was just showing you now, but that was kind of an interactive, interactive way. Okay, so here just plotting the trades and the orders. Uh, this is kind of some other functionality as well that you've got. So you can look at a large body of trades to understand how the transaction cost changed over time as well. So this is additional functionality that it has. Um, again, this is looking at trades over a long period of time to understand our relative transaction costs. Uh, and this is looking at the distribution of the slippage. Um, so now we move back into kind of generating alpha using alternative data. So here we look at Bloomberg News to trade uh, FX spot. Um, so first of all, let's discuss the difference between unstructured and structured news data. So if we think of unstructured news data, this is essentially requires us to read our news articles, blogs in their raw form, do the web scraping ourselves, do a lot of the cleaning. So it's kind of similar to what I was doing with Fed Communications earlier. Um, it tends to be a bit time consuming and particularly when you're looking at lots of websites, it might end up being a very large amount of data processing uh, for you to do. Uh, and also you need to do a bit of NLP work as well. Although typically these days there are a lot of uh, natural, process, natural language processing libraries in Python that help us essentially to, uh, to, to run stuff. Uh, so we don't need to implement, implement NLP engines uh, directly ourselves. If we do the look at the flip side of that is structured news data. So here vendors essentially process a large amount of, of news uh, from numerous sources, and they basically structure it into a form that's readily accessible. So typically they might put newspaper articles into XML format, and they'll be tagged already for us with lots of additional metadata that can give us information about them. So for example, if it's news data tagging the, the ticket, the assets associated with, also the topics as well uh, at the same time. So the idea here is that traders can concentrate on creating trading rules as opposed to uh, uh, doing the cleaning of the data. There's pros and cons of both, obviously. So I'm not gonna say one is always better than the other, but um, I'd say it's probably simpler to start with a structured news data set. And then if you want later on, maybe to start creating your own data sets, that's probably the, what I would recommend in, in practice. Um, I guess the idea of trading markets using news is not a new idea. Traders have been doing this for, for, for many, many years. Um, but the point is we want to be able to automate this in a way that we can basically read as much news as we want. Um, because a human is obviously restricted in terms of how much uh, news they actually read in, in one specific day. Um, and then there's all, all sorts of questions associated with like, how do we create our trading rule? what's our buy, what's our sell, what news do we look at? So there's lots of questions that we need to answer before we actually get to our, to our trade. 
So the general approach I'd say to news filtering is um, we've got several approaches. So one is to pick words and sectors which are relatively generic, things like job cuts, um, uh, essentially. Um, but the, I guess the picking depends upon our, our data source. But we've got to be careful we don't uh, use hindsight bias. So we know, for example, here in this plot, I've got the number of words, number of articles associated with the Greek debt crisis on Bloomberg News. Obviously, once the Greek debt crisis has happened, we know it's an important driver of markets, but we won't necessarily know that beforehand. So we need to be careful when it comes to more generic, um, uh, generic um, uh, rules. So this is essentially some of the specific steps that you might use for, for working with text data sets. The raw data collection, cleaning the data set, structuring it, filtering it for the news that's most relevant for our assets, creating an indicator as well, and then lastly, creating a, a trading rule too. Um, so I'm going to use a Bloomberg news data set. There are many other data sets out there from firms like Refinitiv, uh, Ravenpack, et cetera. So um, you, you've got a choice of several to look at. Um, it's a structured data set. Um, and given it's written all by journalists, it tends to be a bit easier to process because it's in a consistent style. And, and each of the articles has tags that will be very useful, like the timestamp, the title of the news article, what's been written. Uh, as I was saying earlier, things like the tickers, also the topics associated with them as well. Uh, so I'm going to I'm going to generate uh, some news signals for FX. So I'm going to look at tickers such as Euro Dollar, uh, Sterling, Aussie, Kiwi Dollar, etc., and look at news associated with that, and then look at the sentiment of the news on that. Uh, later on, I'll also look at topics associated with the Fed and ECB as well. Um, we also need to do a few additional steps, like cleaning the body text slightly. Um, we need to apply sentiment analysis for each article to get a sentiment score. Um, and then we aggregate these into daily observations and then Z scores from which we create our uh, trading strategy rule. So in this case, I've got here the dollar yen score. So the dollar yen score is the scoring of all the dollar articles minus all the yen articles. And it's basically just looking at short-term momentum in that news. So when it's above the line, it means it's positive in the short term, we buy dollar yen. When it's negative, we, we sell dollar yen. So trying to, again, trying to keep things relatively simple. Uh, just piggybacking on short-term momentum in the news and using that as a way to trade the, the currency pair. And then here I've got the risk-adjusted returns for that. Um, I've got um, here the news-based rule in blue uh, versus a simple trend-following strategy. And we see that my news-based rule actually outperforms trend-following in this sample uh, pretty significantly. Um, but also there's not much correlation between news and trends. So just like with our flows trading strategy earlier, if we have trend, adding news to it is probably going to improve our risk-adjusted returns because we're not extracting the precise uh, same data. Um, and here we create a basket as well using the same trading rule. And it's kind of more obvious here that the news-based strategy outperforms trend. Um, we find that trend actually does okay in recent years, but obviously before that it didn't do, didn't do well at all. So whilst the news, uh, news strategy has actually done relatively well throughout the sample uh, by contrast. Uh, we can also look at news volume as well. So the number of articles we have on an asset, we find it's actually quite correlated to, uh, to, to volatility, which makes sense. If a lot is happening in a certain asset, it's likely that journalists will write about it. Uh, so there's going to be a high correlation between the news written on some on an asset and the implied volatility of it as well. Um, and very, very quickly at the end, also basically we look at scheduled events. We try and predict the volatility around Fed meetings and ECB meetings depended upon 
news associated with Fed and ECB meetings, uh, essentially. Um, here, what I've done is I've plotted the implied volatility on FOMC days, the realized volatility, the difference between implied and realized. I've done that as well for um, uh, uh, ECB. So this is just the overnight points. And we find that typically um, implied tends to be higher on those days. So typically you'd probably make money selling. Well, although obviously there's a risk it might, might blow up. Um, but the key point here is we want to understand if we're looking at the news volume written on the Fed before the Fed decision and also the news volume written on the ECB before the ECB decision, is there some sort of relationship with the volatility on that day? And we find actually, if we plot them, actually the, the, the lines follow each other relatively well. And this seems intuitive. So if everyone is talking about a Fed meeting, it's likely that vol will be bid up on that day. Conversely, if, uh, if there's not much uh, market discussion around it, then vol tends to be relatively high. So potentially if you're trying to trade vol around these dates, looking at news volume as an alternative data set variable in your vol forecasting model could actually be, uh, could actually be quite, quite useful. Okay, I'll just skip to skip to the end here. So that's the end of end of my part. So basically just looking at use cases, um, just a subset of like a, a, of different use cases. Um, I've got a, I've just got a, a quick question here. Um, basically saying use back testing uh, when you have rare data events, rare data points. Um, I think it can be somewhat challenging um, because let's say, for example, Brexit, you've only got one data point. Potentially you can look at the Scottish referendum. Um, but I would still say looking at that one or two data points is probably better than, than nothing. The cases that I've looked here for FOMC and ECB are somewhat easier because those events are repeated many times over the years. So if you end up looking at a 10 or 15 year sample, you will actually get a reasonable number of points. Um, yeah, I, I would say there's not really, I, I think it's, it's pretty challenging when you're looking at uh, rare, rare, rare events, uh, but potentially adding an alternative data set could you give you more insights over them. But you only have one data point, but you only got one precedent, but it's still worth investigating that. Um, uh, so that's just uh, uh, re uh, replying to uh, Andreas's question. I'll, and I'll uh, stop and <laughs> let um, uh, Alexander finish on causality. Yeah, thank you, Seth. Uh, so, um, so Alex, uh, I'll hand over the baton to you. Uh, we are already at like 12.50. Maybe you could take maybe five minutes to- Yeah, not that. more than that, yeah. Uh, uh, if I can share my screen. Yes, let me do that. It, this relates very much to, to, to the previous question. So, of course, we need repetitions of, of the event to have something that, uh, can be backtested in a statistical way, you know. And some events are recurrent, depends on the level of abstraction at which you, you look at them. So if you look like relation be, between GDP and returns, so we've seen many declines of GDP over the last 100 years, of course, because of different causes. Uh, and if you want to really test granular, backtest granular unique events, uh, this is this is uh, uh, more tricky, of course, and you cannot apply standard statistical approaches. Uh, this leads me to, to to the last three slides of the presentation today. Uh, this is a recent blog, uh, Said and I uh, published. It, it's just a blog on LinkedIn, so we didn't have time to to create a fully fledged article. But uh, the idea here is, is simple. So uh, we took some new streams. Uh, all your all new streams, uh, Brexit and COVID. These are diff different new streams we, we took for 
from Bloomberg, and of course, uh, some of these are exogenous. Uh, we here train the probabilistic graphical model or, or, or Bayesian network or causal network, different names, and we train automatically on the different uh, new streams. So we have two asset classes, essentially, a, a FTSE implied vol in returns on FTSE, and you assume that you're an asset manager investing in the, these two asset classes. So we train automatically this, uh, this model on data in the period 1st of September 2017, end of October 2017. And of course, COVID was not on the radar. Okay. Oil new stream changes at, temp, uh, at that time, oil markets were quite, quite calm, but we all know that Brexit was on the radar and every bit of news on, on Brexit caused, it caused uh, movements in the implied votes and in return. So what the machine found is, is the correct uh, predictor variables, a variable in this case, Brexit, and it link causal link to, to implied vote changes and, and, and returns. Uh, you see, these are alternative data sources. So this is text. These are alternative data sources that this, uh, we form exogenous variables uh, uh, from them. Of course, there is link between uh, Brexit and uh, food series returns in implied vote, as well, of course, COVID that was not on the radar, but we'll see uh, this is the situation. Uh, in the period 1st of January this year, 1st of March, we see there is absolutely no uh, link between uh, oil, Brexit and COVID, and there is no link from these exogenous variables to, to the return of the two asset classes, which nevertheless remain correlated, as you can see uh, from the arrow linking these events. Again, this is, this is automatic training. You can see the equations there. Uh, that are encoded by uh, by this probabilistic graphical model, but again, they, these were automatically obtained through the PC algorithm in probabilistic graphical models. But what happened in the last six months? It's not a big secret. So we have the COVID-19 news stream picking up, and in the period first of March, first of May, 2020, we also had some turbulence in in the oil markets, while Brexit fell off the radar for uh, for for that period of time was, was irrelevant. So you see the, the machine here correctly gets the statistical relationship, not guess, but learn the, learn the statistical uh, relationship between, between different events. Uh, again, Brexit is a unique event, but news on Brexit, they're uh, repeatable and they can influence, of course, the asset classes you're investing on. So the, here, the art and also to the profession, the data scout, I mentioned before, the art is to understand what is the market theme the moment what are the relevant new sources that you have to switch on really to to detect what's impacting your the asset classes of, of interest you can uh, uh, and i think alternative data is is a good opportunity uh, i did before many years before uh, writing on causality on basic networks how to to create scenarios through basic networks for events that never happened in the past like brexit breakup of the euro and so on I think the topic quite nice uh, marries with, with the alternative data topic because most of the variables that you want to use in the scenario are not, are not financial variables. They can be geopolitical variables, uh, uh, can be, uh, uh, as you see, uh, public health variables what, what, like COVID-19. Now we live in an information-rich world where data about these variables that you might want to position in a scenario is, is available uh, almost uh, everywhere. Uh, yeah, I think we're running over time. We have very few 
minutes for, for, for Q&A. Well, thank you so much, Alex. Thank you so much, uh, Saeed. Uh, we will just switch back to one thing and then I will uh, revert back to Q&A. One second. So we have uh, questions on the chat, not in the Q and A chat, okay. in the other chat. Yeah, we so have several. Have a couple of questions. Um, so the first question is: uh, Which top key alternative data principles do you recommend for analysis outside of fintech? It's a generic question. Um, any thoughts? <laughs> Yeah, it's it's in terms in terms of principles such as like legal um, legal principles, or I guess it depends how you interpret the um, uh, interpret the question. I suppose. Um, yeah, I don't know how to interpret this question. <laughs> yeah, one thing I, was, I would say is that you. Yeah, you, I would you, I would say you know for whoever asked the question, if you could clarify a little more, I think that would build a little more context. Yeah. Well, one thing I say, what is the principle of using alternative data uh, in any case, whether it's in trading or say risk management or credit, is you want the alternative data set to tell you something that your existing data doesn't tell you. Because if your alternative data is simply um, basically telling you exactly what, you're, what you already know by existing variables, it's not of any value. So the key point is, does it tell you additional, um, additional information that you don't already know? So does it increase your R square essentially? It is uncorrelated. So I know it's probably a bit of a cop-out answer, but that's that's essentially the principle that I would use. So the alternative data set needs to tell you something additional that you didn't already know you from your uh, existing uh, data sets. Right. Um, and I think there was another question. What was the R squared on the last slide of the FTSE returns? <laughs> you can work it out from the stochastic errors there. I, I don't recall it, but if you take the square, what you'll get. It. <laughs> don't let me do this now, real time. But you see in the equations, the, the normal, the Gaussian error, you have the variance there. And I also shared the slides on the Q Academy site. Um, yeah. All the slides I just put in the, in the same slide deck. Um, so you can uh, download uh, or you can just view it on the platform. It has both uh, Saeed's and uh, Alex's slides. And I've also embedded the video which we are currently live streaming, which is on YouTube um, also in that. So if you wanna go and revisit the slides, I know the last few minutes, uh, I had to rush you a little bit, Alex, so that's uh, fine. Uh, I think there's another question. Uh, any examples on what practitioners are doing wrong with alternative data and uh, attempt to use of alternative data going wrong? Any uh, any similar to the algo trading mishaps, anyone, um, any stories, any war stories on mishaps of using alternative data? I, I, I think the, the key point with alternative data, and I'd say this is data science teams more broadly in funds, is they need to be an integral part of the, of the investment process. So they can't just be set, like a data science team can't be just sent away and say, look, find something in the data and come back to us. Uh, and I think this probably has happened with uh, certain funds, essentially. So it, they end up being an independent unit, and then there's not really much communication between the two. Uh, the, the key point with alternative data, you want to ask a question first. So we want to know, like, what are retail sales going to be like? Are, for example, Starbucks selling more Frappuccino than, I don't know, than, than coffee or, or latte or something like yeah. that? So you, there needs to be questions that need to be asked to begin with, and then you go and search the alternative data 
then the data scientists can basically go away and try and answer those questions. And um, this is talking from the viewpoint of a discretionary discretionary fund. Um, but if they end up being used in isolation, then th there's not really any way to monetize what, what happens. And I would just say generally, if there's a if you don't have any questions to begin with, and you, you'll just end up finding spurious correlations with the, with the data. And this is obviously not just an alternative data issue. It's something which is related to any sort of data set. So you need to ask the question, essentially, to prune your search space to begin with, and then you can then you can work on it. Uh, particularly in I'd say particularly in finance because the signal to noise ratio is so low. So um, it's something that afflicts finance in particular. And I kind of also want to just add that you know a lot of use cases in the alternative data segment. It's actually being useful to the fundamental analysts quite a bit, mm -hmm. uh, especially for people who have these kinds of questions that you were mentioning, say, um, in terms of asking the question and not having the data and just coming up with numbers. Now you have the actual data sets you can use to come up with those insights and then potentially lead to you know, having those decisions rather than uh, just going by you know, um, assumptions and proxies, mm. right? Cool. So I think it's one o'clock. It's time to wrap up. I thank you again, Saeed and Alex. I wish we had a little more time to, uh, you know, get get to some of the questions I had, but I'll probably, you know, uh, schedule something offline with you to have those questions. And again, Saeed, thank you so much for sharing all the code and uh, uh, the GitHub links. And I will update the page so that people can easily find your GitHub page. And also, uh, as we discussed, we will see if we can make some of those uh, uh, able to run through um, the Q sandbox uh, so that they don't have to install anything. And this is something I want to uh, end this summer school with. I know uh, it took quite a bit of effort from uh, all the speakers and also uh, people from my team, you know, many of them you don't see, but have been working tirelessly behind the scenes to put together all the content, uh, the links, uh, the sandbox uh, related aspects. Um, so I thank all of you for uh, putting together all this hard work and putting together all these amazing presentations and your time to share it with the world. But I also thank all the uh, community members who have been you know, coming back week after week to listen to these lectures and upskilling themselves. You're living in interesting times, but um, that hasn't deterred you from continuing your journey of learning. And I hope the last 10 to 12 weeks of effort of we putting together these kinds of workshops were helpful in your learning process. And uh, I welcome you back in fall when we're gonna have many more speakers on various themes. That's all for summer 2020 folks. I hope you have a better summer 2021 and I will uh, join you again in the fall. Thank you again. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Said. Bye-bye. Thanks for coming, bye. Thank you for joining us for today's session of the Q Podcast Show. You can subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Visit us at quantuniversity.com for upcoming events, courses, and to continue the discussion.